As they're going, please turn to Galatians chapter 1. Mentioned last week, starting a new series, but last week we were in Acts chapter 9. As a precursor, seeing Paul's conversion there, a precursor, a foundation for what we're going to see uh, as we start the book of Galatians. Remembering as well, this is Paul's first book, first letter to any church uh, that has been preserved for us that uh, we have in our Bibles that we call Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I'll be reading just a little bit. Um, our son Ryan has had three really important foundational interviews uh, throughout his uh, college and now into career life that just were very uh, tr- uh, transitional, very important uh, to lead him to the next uh, step of his career and his life. And the first one, when he's applying for his athletic training program in UW Lacrosse, which is a highly competitive program there, and he had a really important interview coming up, and he had no, really no experience interviewing. Uh, and, and so I helped him prepare for that. Uh, his next big one, set four years later, helped him a little bit for that. His last one, he's like, ah, I'm, I'm good. Uh, so he's all set. But it was that first one, right, when the kids are younger, that first one he said, you know, Dad, that was really helpful. Uh, I think was able to help him in that process. But during an interview, lots of employers will ask the passion question, right? You familiar with that? What are you passionate about? Which is a really simple question, but can be a difficult question to answer in the context of a a job interview, right? Because you don't know what the the person's looking for, and you want to be authentic in what you're you're saying, what you're, you're, you're actually passionate about. Well, I found some really crazy answers that people actually gave to the passion question. So I want to share some of those. Imagine these coming up in an interview. One says, yeah, I like learning languages. I'm actually teaching myself uh, Wookiee uh, right now. Uh, one person is passionate about witchcraft, which I strongly frown upon. Uh, time travel, well, whatever. Um, collecting firearms, you know, you live in Wisconsin. Yeah, that to- makes total sense, unless your passion is also arguing with people online, because those, <laughs> those two definitely don't go together. Uh, some like to enter food competitions, other, others uh, race ferrets, uh, others donate blood as a passion. Imagine sharing these in, in an interview. One guy says, I'm the bat, man. I don't know what that means. And the last one just says, man, you just don't want to know. Just let's not even go there. You know who's passionate? Chris Cry. That guy's passionate, right? Imagine having a conversation with him. It's just like, it's so, it's so intense, it's so fun. Or imagine, is, is Seth in here? Where's Seth? He's out there. Seth has to sit under him uh, for his uh, licensing paper, then the ordination paper. Imagine, uh, he's going to turn the screws on, on Seth. No, Chris kids me. He says, I'm the one that turns the screws on the guy. But I appreciate, uh, among other things, Chris is a passionate guy. Uh, but no one would dispute the fact that the Apostle Paul had passion. Right? We saw last Sunday in his conversion story that he was carrying men and women off to prison. Uh, the chapter before that, that they laid the cloaks at the feet of the Apostle Paul, specifically at the stoning of Stephen. And he said this exact thing about himself. In his own words, Ephesians chapter 3, as to zeal persecuting the church. That's who he was. He was so zealous, he was so passionate about his beliefs that he was willing to carry men and women off to prison, literally uh, be responsible for their death. 
Now you could argue that Paul's passion was not lessened at all when he became a believer, but it was radically changed, wasn't it? It was radically transformed and sent off in a different direction. It was funneled into uh, following after Jesus. And the other major difference is that instead of inflicting suffering on others, now he was willing to endure suffering. As opposed to uh, putting men and women in prison, he himself now was willing to be in prison for the sake of Christ. And also, and not, not, not lastly, uh, he was no longer willing to kill people for the gospel or for his beliefs, but now was willing to die himself for the cause of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, his passion and zeal were still turned up high. And I think we see that especially in this, his first book, uh, the book to the churches of Galatians, uh, again, which is his first letter. And in this, uh, he's got some really strong language. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, he laid down the threat of a curse. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I've never cursed anyone in my life. I've never said anything close to that. Uh, but that's how important it was to him. In chapter 2, uh, to Peter's face, not, not privately, but in front of the whole church, uh, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter was making some bad decisions in, re in regard to the gospel. In chapter 3, he called people harsh names. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In chapter 5, he wrote these shocking words, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So you don't know what that means? Look it up at home. Uh, but lest you think he's just some kind of harsh monster, just, you know, giving out this strong language at every turn, uh, look at chapter 4. My little children... Not as a father this time, but as a mother. For whom I am again in the, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's how much he cared about them. Uh, like a mother about to, to give birth, he wants to, he wants to see them born, he wants to see them grown up. So somebody that has that kind of passion, that kind of compassion for uh, those in his flock, he also then has the right to speak some difficult hard words when, the, uh, when it is necessary. So with that as a backdrop, let's read the first part of chapter 1 together, if you want to follow along. Chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, they're not one time, but twice back to back, he laid out the potential of them being cursed for abandoning the gospel. So let me remind you of, of Paul's commission 
from last week, from Acts chapter 9, Jesus said three key things to Ananias uh, uh, just before he went to pray for Paul. And he said, listen, Paul is my chosen instrument. He is, that's number one. Number two, he is to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and nations and children of Israel. Uh, And number three, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So those, out of those three things, chosen instrument, carry your name before, the, before, just speak the name of Christ, or also suffer for Jesus, how much of that is still true of us today? Well, I would say every last bit of it, except perhaps the part about carrying it to the nations or, or to, to Israel. We, we, we may do that, but uh, that's not necessarily our key responsibility. But number one, every believer is God's chosen instrument. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. When did God prepare those things? Beforehand, right? From before, the, chosen before the foundation of the world. And he prepared good works for us for, before and before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them, that we should do those things. So consider that God not only chose you before the foundation of the world, he also created good works for you to accomplish. So in every possible way, you see, Paul was God's chosen instrument. You and I as believers are also God's chosen instrument. But we are also called to speak for Christ and also, if necessary, to suffer for Jesus. But there is one part of Paul's commission that does not apply to us, and that is that, that, that he was an apostle, his apostolic authority. We can and we should still speak for Christ. We can and we should still suffer for Christ, but we could never be an apostle of Jesus because that no longer exists. And I won't go into a lot of details this morning on that because as we work our way through the book of Galatians, we'll, we'll be coming back to that again and again. But he's very clear about the source of his apostolic authority. Look back at verse 1. He said, Paul, an apostle, very clear here, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that's a a place of authority. And we are uh, watching again. We are all embroiled, and it depends on how much you're paying attention. In another historic Uh, unprecedented, brutal, whatever you want to call it, election cycles, right? Uh, And I think this is going to be one of the craziest ones ever. Uh, The last one is craziest in my lifetime, and and this next one might beat it. But what's going on? You've got uh, uh, groups of men and women uh, and and, and larger groups that, that, that surround them that are trying to either seize power or hold on to power, right? That That's what that's all about. But we need to understand that you and I, human beings, can make a president. We can elect a president, but only God can make an apostle. And those are no longer. But in that day, the apostolic authority was the highest possible human authority. It was, it was uh, so important that it actually granted Paul the authority to write down Scripture and to share it as the very Word of God. And as we'll see, Paul's apostolic authority is going to feature prominently throughout the letter, uh, especially in what I think is a theme verse, verse 6. Look at that again. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So here's this church that was established in the grace of Christ, that was growing up in the grace of Christ, but now is turning away from God's gospel of grace. That's an enormous problem, and that, that's, that is what Paul is addressing 
in this letter. So if many in the church of Galatia were going after another gospel, it begs the question, how many were there? How many gospels are there? Well, Paul answers that question. Somebody said only one. Paul answers that question himself, verse 7. He just simply says, not that there's another one, right? Uh, they went after another gospel, but, but let's be clear. There isn't another one. Uh, there's only one true gospel. So, so then what did Paul mean that when he was saying they were going after other gospels? Well, they're, of course, false gospels. So how many of those are there? Endless, right? Many, countless. Uh, there's no end to the distortion and deception and multitude of ways that you can take the one true gospel and distort it into something that's wrong and false. You see, this is why Paul was using such strong language as invoking curses and confronting the, the pillar of the church, right? Peter, he was, the, you know, the, Jesus said, I will build my church upon you. He was the, the number one dude in the early church, and he confronted him to his face. He called this church foolish and bewitched and wished that some would be emasculated. See, this was not just a matter of life and death. This was a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And at the end of the day, there are not a multitude of options. There's only two options. There's the one true gospel and all other pretenders. It's just that simple. Which is why Paul was so clear in his presentation of the gospel. And we're going to focus on uh, the rest of my points this morning are going to be just on verse 4. And I know sometimes we, we read the opening to one of Paul's letters and we say, well, let's kind of, let's skip you know, past the hellos and how are you and, you know, let's dig in because we know about three or four or five verses down, Paul really kind of gets into the meat of the letter. So let's just kind of skip over that. Well, we're not going to do that uh, because I think it, he lays out core pieces of the gospel here. And the first one that I see is the necessity of the gospel, uh, specifically in the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Now, now think about this. If Jesus gave himself for our sins, it means that there was no other way that our sins could be forgiven. Martin Luther comments here, he says, that these words are the very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of righteousness. And by, what he, by that he means by all kinds of false righteousness, all kinds of false righteousness that would be pretenders uh, to the gospel. So in other words, his death and resurrection were necessary because our own, and our own righteousness is not only worthless, but it actually can stand in the way. It's a blockade to us for seeing the gospel. For example, this morning I got some kind of bronchitis going on the, the, the last week here. And, but let's say I've got, let's see, I've got a serious disease. It's a, it's a life-threatening disease, and there's only one uh, medicine that can cure my disease. Well, I just so happen to live in Viroqua, right? And what's available in Viroqua? Oh, man, we got everything, right? We got homeopathy, and we got essential oils, and I could do some kind of uh, clay bath or something. I don't know what it is. Uh, actually, it reminds me. when We used to be in Landmark, you know, and we were all in the, the, new, the new age uh, folks. Uh, I, if I had time, I, was, uh, I swear I was going to start my own therapy. I was going to put up a brochure, a little quick website. I was going to be a CMT, a certified mole therapist. Uh, and I was convinced I could get some buy-in. Uh, from that, you know, seriously, because there's all kinds of therapy. So all kinds of choices that I could use to cure my incurable disease, uh, but if I took any one of those except for the one medicine that would help me, what's the problem here? 
Those things are not only worthless, they're ineffectual, they're standing in my way, right? I've got to get rid of those things and only choose the very one that is going to save my life. Same way with, with our works righteousness. In any way we possibly think we're going to make God happy with us, those things not only are worthless, they stand in the way of relying on Christ and Christ alone. For our, so our sin required a sinless God-man to take our place. But I also see here the exclusivity of the gospel. Same phrase as before. Argues not only for the necessity of the gospel, but the exclusivity of the gospel. And if Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary for our salvation, it follows then that he was the only means of our salvation. You see, he was the only one that could have paid that debt. How many times in your life have you heard somebody say, you know what, all religions are the same. They're, they're, they're all alike, aren't they? Uh, they? They all just seem like they're the same. Well, I've heard it said that all religions are the same uh, at the deeper level. It's just the, the surface level that looks different. You know, it's just the, the entailments and how you go about your worship. And that, that's all different, but, but down deep, they're all the same, is what they're trying to say. Interestingly, I, I shared this in first sermon, and Don Eisman said, he just heard Rabbi Zacharias, maybe some of you heard this this morning, if you had the radio on, and he said, all the major religions, among other things, all believe that you're supposed to honor your father and mother. They all have that in common. They have all kinds of things in common, just being nice to one another, right? So you, you could argue, you know, you know so what if, if Islam's God is called Allah and they, they pray toward Mecca five times a day, as long as they're nice to each other, right? So what if, if Buddhists uh, venerate Buddha uh, as long as, as they live in harmony with one another and, 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 and all people, right? Christians worship in churches, Jews worship in synagogues, Muslims wor worship in mosques. You know, what's the difference? They're all surface-level differences that make religions look different, but they're all still the same. This line of thinking could not possibly be more wrong. In fact, it's just the opposite of what, what people say. It's, in reality, it's the core beliefs, right? It's the deeper stuff that are radically different, and, 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 and the other stuff are just are, are entailments. For example, here's a quick way to cut through all that nonsense, this idea that all religions are the same. If you were to have a conversation with a a practicing Muslim, and you were to ask them, listen, uh, I think uh, your uh, uh, practice of Islam is the exact same thing as Christianity. What do you think? What do you think they would say? He or she would say? They think you're crazy. Those things are mutually exclusive. They're completely incompatible. One is not the other. They, they, they're completely different. Uh, so they're not the same whatsoever. Uh, all other religions, and not, not to mention, uh, all the religions have man working their way up to God, but only Christianity has a God who works his way down to men and women. The very fact that Jesus gave himself for our sins speaks to the fact that this was the only way we could be saved. We also see in this one verse the submission of Jesus in the gospel. It says that Jesus gave himself and we see very clearly from this scripture and many others that he willingly gave himself, that he joyfully laid down his life for us. John chapter 8, Jesus says this of himself. 
When you have lifted, the son, lifted up the Son of Man, when I'm on the cross, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Do you see that? Absolute, perfect submission. Then Philippians 2, same idea. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Who knows it? Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's Jesus, perfect submission, perfect obedience to the Father. So there is submission in the gospel, submission of Jesus in the gospel. There's also substitutionary atonement in the gospel. And the key phrase here is that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And, and the original language there, the word for means instead of or in place of. And this is what's called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, sometimes uh, lengthened to penal substitutionary atonement, and simply means Jesus was our substitute. So, so don't, don't get caught up in, in the language. just means Jesus was our substitute. He died in our place. He died instead of us. We deserve the wrath of God but for our sin, but instead Jesus took on the wrath of God. He, our sins were imputed to him, and he died instead of us as our substitute. And not only is this the, the clear teaching of Scripture, but this is exactly what we, we mean when we use this in normal language. So, for example, I would assume every husband here, every father here is willing to lay down his life for his wife or his children. Yes? All right? Get some. There's only one guy in the first service that said they would. Uh, so I was hoping for at least two, and then I saw two hands. Uh, of course, right? That's what you would want to do. And what you mean when you say, I would give my life for my wife or my children means uh, that I would be their substitute, right? If there was a situation, uh, God forbid, that it was either they, one of them die or I die, I would willingly take their place. Do you see? I would willingly be their substitute. That's what it means, right? It doesn't mean that I would die for you, so therefore I'm just going to go throw myself off a cliff just to show you how much I love you. And why would that be wrong? Because it's worthless. That death means absolutely nothing. So, so it has to mean a substitute. But unfortunately, this core doctrine uh, of the gospel is being abandoned by many. So I, I want to give you a, a couple of criticisms to it and then answer those criticisms. And I'll start with uh, this quote. Somebody writes, The cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. Let, let, me, let me stop there. <coughs> Excuse me. What he is uh, saying here is that substitutionary atonement is, uh, if it were true, would be cosmic child abuse. So that would be uh, God the Father uh, uh, abusing God the Son, cosmic child abuse, if a substitutionary atonement were true. But he's saying, no, it isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. It's not a vengeful father punishing the, the son for an offense he has not even committed. That's true. Jesus never sinned. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like an ancient pagan God than the father of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm hoping you're able to yourself see some key things that are wrong with this, but let me point them out to you. Number one, when he takes this idea of loving our enemies, which is one of the, the, 
the most difficult commands in all of Scripture and fundamentally true. But when you take that command and you, and you make it fit into and cover all of Scripture and every other command, right, that is always, always bad form of interpretation. But secondly, he says here, if you have a God who requires a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath, uh, surely uh, that would be like a, a pagan God. Uh, so, so, so tell me, does, do you remember, and hopefully you've, you've read through the Bible several times, do you remember any place in Scripture where it talks about uh, God's wrath being propitiated or satisfied through a sacrifice? Does that ring a bell anywhere? Right? It's the entire Bible, Right? Starting with Genesis chapter 3, where, where God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve to cover their sin. It was the, that was the first sacrifice. So I, I, I wonder, has this person ever one time read the Old Testament? Because that's the story of the Bible. God's wrath because of our sin being propitiated and satisfied all throughout Scripture. Another critic of substitution and atonement called it the ugliest theory of atonement that exists. Still another uh, took Isaiah 53, which is uh, one of our uh, most beautiful uh, passages that, uh, that we enjoy, and says it does not teach substitutionary atonement, and said this, when we read Isaiah 53 through the lenses it provides, we end up with a totally different reading to what we've been accustomed. Now, if, if you see this, okay, if somebody says to you, I've discovered something you've never seen before, you know, in the Old Testament, I'm not saying it's wrong because maybe it's, a, maybe it's a new way of viewing it. It's not always wrong, but be red flags, okay? As soon as you, somebody says, I've, you've never been seeing this before, let me explain to you. And he goes on to say, we see nothing about God's wrath being appeased, nothing about killing the servant, nothing about substitution, but everything about identification, forgiveness, subversion of violence, and restoration to peace, so what I want to do, those are some key criticisms. Uh, what I want to do is look at Isaiah 53, the very, the very text that he was using, and see if what he is saying makes sense at all. So Isaiah 53, and what the author said, he said, we see nothing about God's wrath being appeased. We see nothing about God killing the servant or this idea of substitution. Well, let me start by saying, Personally, I didn't see anything in this passage that's very clear about God's wrath being appeased. So I will, uh, I will, let, I will give him that point, uh, but just because uh, it isn't in this passage, right, doesn't mean that it isn't everywhere else throughout Scripture. You can't take one point of a doctrine and say, well, I've got to find in every single passage. Uh, that, that just is unfair. It doesn't make any sense. So let's look at the next two. This idea of God killing the servant, or what he would call cosmic child abuse. Do we see that anyway? Well, smitten by God and afflicted. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then the last verse there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And by the way, this is just part of Isaiah 53. He was using all of Isaiah 53. Uh, then the idea of substitution, which is all over this thing. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Do you see it? Do you see these things? Uh, they are to me as 
clear as day. And why is this so important? Because as I'm implying, substitutionary atonement is at the very core of the doctrine of salvation. Uh, without, without Christ, uh, without our sins being imputed to him, and then our, his righteousness being imputed to us, there is no salvation. It doesn't exist. But although it's at the very heart of the gospel, we must never allow it to be just a dry doctrine. It's a marvelous truth, but it's a marvelous truth that is supposed to lead us to joy and to worship, right? Uh, maybe not every single time you think about uh, substitutionary atonement, and it doesn't matter if you call it, whatever you call it, it doesn't matter, uh, but you understand the, the key of what we're talking about here. It is supposed to lead us toward joy and worship. And, and you know, we, we, we sang about that this morning. Did you realize you sang about substitutionary atonement? You probably weren't thinking that, but here's what you sang this morning. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. What is that? That's substitution. That's my sin. That's being, did he deserve that? He was sinless. No sin. But here, here his sin are upon, my sin is upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. And I know in that cross, it is finished. I also see in here the, the deliverance through the gospel. Still, same verse, verse 4. Paul says uh, he was, uh, uh, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And the word here for deliver means to, to, to pluck out, to, to remove from, from a group of, of something else. And, and that reminded me of when our son Ryan, oldest son, was uh, little, uh, we, uh, we didn't do Halloween. Uh, and, but the problem was we did Halloween one time. Uh, so then, then I had to kind of uh, back up from there. But, but, but let, let me say something about, about Halloween and things like that for a moment. Uh, the fact that we didn't do Halloween, am I judging those that do Halloween? Heavens no, all right? Uh, just, a, just a side note here that, that we're very cautious with that sort of thing that uh, it would be very easy for somebody that abstained from, from celebrating that or practicing that could look at people who participate and they say, oh, they're so worldly and sinful and we would never do that as a family. Or those who participate look at the people who abstain and say, oh, they're so legalistic and pharisaical. What's wrong with them? Their kids never have any fun, right? Now, both of those sometimes are true. Right? Some people who don't participate are legalistic and pharisaical, and some people who, who do participate are very worldly. No, no question, but, but let's give grace for everybody else in the middle who are just trying to live out their Christian faith, their beliefs in their own conscience, all right? This is not, this is not the substitutionary atonement, Halloween, do you, do you see? So, so let's, be, let's be careful with that, but, but as I said, so I have a problem. Little Ryan uh, dressed up one year and begged for candy, uh, but now all of a sudden, me and old dad and mom say, you can't dress up and beg for candy this year. So, and, 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 and Karen, by the way, you know, as we homeschool our kids, I point there because she's usually there. Um, <laughs> hello, dear. 99% um, of the homeschooling, and you know, every, that was on Karen. But once in a while, there'd be the hard thing is like, all right, dad, uh, you have to handle this one. So, so here's what I did. I took a, a bag of pinto beans and a small bag of M&Ms, mixed them in this container, set it before my little son, who's like, what's going on? And, and tried to explain to him, listen, 
Halloween is like one of those things that there's a bunch of bad stuff mixed in there, and, and, and we don't like it, and here's some reasons why we don't like it, but, you know, there's some fun things in there, you know, so that represents M&M's, and, and we just find as a family, it's a little bit too hard to kind of pluck out, you know, all the good things and, and separate from the bad. Well, little Ryan was happy with my speech when he was done, and, and it, we never really had any, any begging uh, to, 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 to go do that again, but, but he got to eat the M&M's afterwards. And in order to eat the M&M's, what did he have to do? He had to deliver them from those dry pinto beans, didn't he? He had to rescue each one individually uh, from those ugly pinto beans. That's what's going on here, this deliverance, plucking out. And this word is used in the book of Acts to describe, the number one, the rescuing of the Israelites from Egypt. Would you say that was a deliverance? Oh, my goodness, right? Uh, the uh, probably most miraculous uh, talked about deliverance in, in all of Scripture other than our, our salvation through Christ. And it was so important that God dozens of times in the rest of the Old Testament would say, I am the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who, who led you, who delivered you out of the hand of Egypt. You see, that deliverance became really a name for himself, for, for God himself. So foundational was that deliverance. So it's used in the book of Acts for that, also of the rescue of Peter from prison and from the hand of Herod the king, and also the rescue of Paul from a mob that was about to lynch him. See, in all these cases, each of these people were, were plucked out, they were rescued from a horrible fate. This describes our salvation. All believers were plucked out of the sinful state of darkness and the wrath of God and were delivered into God's kingdom. But you say to yourself, if we have been delivered, and specifically from this present evil age, and you say, it doesn't feel like that, does it? Because I go out outside the, the bounds of this, this uh, wonderful little happy church, and I encounter all kinds of evil things. So in what sense have we been delivered from the present evil age? Well, let me throw up a diagram here that, that might help you. We have, first of all, the present evil age, which we're all still living in. We're, we're born in, into sin uh, and then willfully sinned after that. And this present evil age and our experience of it is going to continue until we die. But praise the Lord, through the deliverance of Christ at the cross, we have been already transferred from the present evil age into the age to come. Uh, similarly, Ephesians 2.6 says that believers are raised up with him, with Christ, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So you don't tend to think of yourself, do you, as, as to, to say, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places, not in the future. Right now, I am seated with Christ. Uh, and it's true, every bit of it. So, so we need to understand that he has already delivered us from the present evil age, but he has not yet fully delivered us. Did you see the difference? Uh, until uh, time that, that we die. Um, so, so that's the difference uh, we have already been delivered, but not yet fully delivered from this present evil age. Uh, but again, uh, we're experiencing uh, much of that, aren't we, through the fruits and blessings of our salvation. Finally, last this morning, there's the sovereign plan of the gospel. Paul said that all this, everything we talked about, was according to the will of our God and Father. You always want to know, right, when when things aren't going the way you expect them, that somebody is in charge and somebody that has all the power 
is in charge and has a plan, right? And this is what's happening. Remember I said all the way from Genesis 3, when God killed animals to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. All the way through all the Old Testament sacrifices. Beautiful passages like we saw in Isaiah 53. Then we've got Jesus' actual submission and obedience uh, to his Father uh, through the cross and the resurrection. Uh, And then we've got the New Testament looking back upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. So, Every step of the way, from the beginning all the way to the end, all we have there is God's gospel and God's sovereign plan through the gospel. You see, that's why Paul can say in Ephesians that we have been chosen from before the foundation of the world because God's sovereign plan of the gospel has always been in place. So let me ask you, does it lead to joy? Will you walk out of here just a little bit happier, a little bit more joyful this morning? Is there a sense of, of gratitude and thankfulness that, that pours out of your heart? And again, I don't care. You can call it substitutionary atonement or just call it what Jesus did for you. But it's supposed to lead to worship and service. Let's pray that it does. Father, sometimes we... We actually shed tears when we ponder the wonder of the cross, the power of resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, where we are miraculously and wondrously now seated with Christ. We have been delivered from the present evil age. We are being delivered from the power of sin. And one day, Lord, you will deliver us from the presence of all sin. But until that day, there's evil all around us. There's Jesus before us. Lord, drill into us. Help us, uh, as we sang earlier, open up our eyes and wonder so, so we can uh, be more humble and grateful and worshipful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.